Hey, Deserving Listeners, today's episode is about long-distance relationships. A lot of you have been emailing me questions about long-distance relationships for a long time, and so I am finally getting to it. This is actually part three of my Loneliness Deep Dive series, but part one was on avoidant personality disorder, part two was on dissociation. I think those are only for patrons of the podcast. This is This episode is for everyone. And let's introduce the podcast. This is called the Psychology in Seattle podcast, and I am called Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. So when I Google, uh, you know, long-distance relationships, I find that there's a lot of simplistic or even just bad advice on the internet, you know, just bland things like, hey, if you're in a long-distance relationship, you know, five tips of being in a long-distance relationship. Number one, don't judge each other. Well, that's pretty obvious, right? I mean, what is specific to a long-distance relationship about not judging each other? Um, you shouldn't judge each other in a in a non-long-distance relationship as well. By the way, let's do some definitions here. So long-distance relationship is considered by research to be at least 132 miles away. All the stats that I have, by the way, are in the, in the U.S., so it's about two plus hours of driving, two and a half hours of driving. So if, if you live two to three hours away, in all likelihood, you consider yourself to be in a long distance relationship. Now, in my neck of the woods in Seattle, people commute quite long distances. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people in two hour along, you know, two hour uh, driving distance away from each other. I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't consider themselves to be in a long-distance relationship. For those in my area, that'd be like between Seattle and Bellingham. And and so I could see it going either way. But anyway, so research shows that that's about the cutoff. If you live an hour and a half away, then people say, ah, that's not really long distance. Of course, if you live in another state or another country or a plane ride away, then obviously that's a long-distance relationship. The opposite of a long-distance relationship is a geographically close relationship. Geographically close relationship. So you have long-distance relationships, or LDRs, and geographically close relationships, or GCRs. I'm going to avoid the uh, acronyms because I just don't like to do that. All right. Prevalence. How many people are in long-distance relationships? Well, I have, again, all United States statistics, although there are statistics in other countries as well, but I just have all the stats here. The rates of long-distance romantic relationships are increasing, which makes some sense with the mobility of people and people getting various jobs in various different places and the facilitation of Online communication means that the you know long distance relationships are on the rise. Well, how many people currently are in long distance relationships? Well, it's it's a pretty you know in your mind just take a guess out of all the relationships, all the marriages, people who are married. How many of them are in a long distance relationship? Well, the Center uh, for the Study of Long Distance Relationships found that three percent of marriages are long distance currently. So it's not that many. But when you count them all up, that's millions of people in the United States are in a long-distance relationship. So that's currently. But when we look at the past, uh, in terms of like, have you, you know, has your marriage ever had a long-distance component to it? Ten percent of marriages have included a period of long-distance within the first three years. So 
a typical or one profile might be you meet and you date for six months, then one person moves out of state or out of the area and you continue dating for another year, but you're long distance and then you move to the same town and then you get married or whatever, that kind of thing. Or after you get married, someone gets a job or a, they get a, they enter a doctoral program and they travel across the country for a couple of years and then you're reunited and you're fine and you're all back together. Uh, other research finds that 10% of couples still maintain a long distance relationship after marriage. So meaning that if you're in a long distance relationship before marriage, Many couples will stay long distance even after they're married. Being married doesn't necessarily mean that people say we're definitely going to live in the same town. 40% of young adults are involved in a long distance relationship at any given time. So long distance relationships tend to skew towards younger people, college age people, this sort of thing, people in their 20s, much more likely. If I was to speculate as to why, I would say that maybe younger people are more uh, open to the idea. Also, younger people are more, uh, they're better with online communication, but also just the lifestyle of a young person. You're going to different colleges. You don't necessarily have a choice of job. You are being, uh, you know, you don't have power in your life and you're kind of being carted around by thing, things and factors that are under your control. Whereas when you're older, you have more control over that. Okay, so again, 3% of marriages are long distance, but 10% have included uh, a long distance period at some point in the marriage. So not that many, really, but a good, a good number of people. All right, let's talk about the longevity. What does the research show us about how long long distance relationships last in contrast to geographically close relationships? Well, so I'm going to lay out the plus side first. So on the plus side, most researchers, and there's been a lot of research into long-distance relationships, most researchers, researchers have found that people in a long-distance relationship report similar satisfaction levels to those in a geographically close relationship. This finding, and there's lots of finding, lots of studies that find this, was surprising to me. I thought for sure people in long-distance relationships would report lower satisfaction, lower attachment, this sort of thing. But when you just ask people, how do you think your, your relationship is going? There are similar satisfaction curves, you know, meaning that some people in long distance relationships have low satisfaction and some people have high and similar with geographically close. Some have low satisfaction and some have high. So that was interesting. And that really points to our flexibility as humans, I suppose. Some studies find that long-distance relationships can actually be better than geographically close relationships. Long-distance relationship couples report being more in love, according to one study, and that they fight less often. Now, the speculation here, so one study, maybe a few studies, I can't remember the exact thing, but at least one study found that long-distance relationships, people report being more in love and fighting less. Well, why would that be? You know, that doesn't make a lot of sense. It's counterintuitive, right? Well, on one level, it could just be that you appreciate each other more. And when you're away from each other, you say, well, I, I don't want to jeopardize this because I've, I, pre this is precious to me 
because we barely ever get to see each other. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that I'm as healthy as possible. The other speculation is that when you're in a long distance relationship, you actually withhold honest opinions from each other and you don't really show your true self. And research actually shows that when long distance couples come together and actually live together or live in the same town, there's usually a lot of growing pains that couples will go through. And I've seen this anecdotally because when you're away from each other, you uh, aren't necessarily your, your full range of your, of your personality. Also, you're probably not going to hurt each other as much because you don't have the opportunity to because you're not communicating that often. When you live with someone, like you're on top of each other, you get sick of each other, and there's more fighting. But it's hard to know, you know, if, if that's, if that's the, th- the thing here. But some studies, again, like I said, find that long-distance relationships actually have some benefit in that you fight less. And when they ask people on long-distance relationships, 50% said it actually made them feel closer. I'm guessing because they appreciated each other more. They didn't take each other for granted when they lived, you know, far apart. Kelmer et al. 2013 study found that long-distance relationship couples have higher levels of perceived relationship quality. They have higher levels of dedication to their relationship. So people in long-distance relationships exhibited more dedication to the relationship, lower levels of feeling trapped, which makes sense, right? And lower perceived likelihood of breaking up, even though they weren't less likely to break up, but they, they thought they were less likely to break up. Couples were in other, uh, Meitzner and Lynn in 2005 study found that couples in long distance relationships report learning how to trust each other more, how to have more patience and how to have better communication. Okay, so that's all on the plus side. At the very least, it looks like long-distance relationships aren't inherently uh, you know, unhealthy or fragile. And a lot of people in long-distance relationships report there being benefits of not fighting as much, trusting and learning how to trust, learning better communication, having more appreciation for each other, this, this sort of thing. On the other hand, let's look at the research on the other hand. On the other hand, the average length of a long-distance relationship is three years. Well, how does that compare to geographically close relationships? Well, for geographical close relationships, it's seven years. So the average length of a geographically close relationship, seven years, long-distance relationship, three years. So what does that tell us? (laughs) That tells us that long-distance relationships on average, are shorter. Now, why is that? Is that because the long-distance nature made it more difficult? Or do people choose long-distance relationships because they're not into being with someone for a long time? Because, you know, you have to look at these confounding factors, right? I could see a situation where many people might choose long-distance relationships because they're not really looking for a full-on commitment. But we could also imagine that the stress of long-distance takes a toll on many relationships, resulting in a lower average length of relationship going from seven to three years. A lot of research, or not a lot, but some research found that the major milestone was four months in to the long distance relationship period. So let's say you're in a relationship in the same town for a year, and then you separate, you, you start a long distance relationship. 
Well, for the first couple of months, it's, it's easy. You can manage. You know, it's hard, but you can manage. But by the time you get to the four-month period, the four-month uh, time, uh, you, a, a lot of couples will report that that's when it gets really hard. Maybe it's hard to deal with the fact that you're not seeing that person anymore or you're starting to kind of settle into the reality of the fact that it's long distance. Now, this is average. Some people might hit that mark two months in. Some people, it might be six months. But on average, it's four months. And actually, now that I am saying this out loud, I am reminded of the pandemic. So the pandemic, it were about, let's see, it's started in March, April, right? And now we're at, at the beginning of August. So it's about, you know, the four-month period. And, and for me, the pandemic was bad in the beginning, but after four or five months, I feel like it's hitting an, a new demoralization uh, threshold where it just feels like, wait, so this is what my life is going to be like for I don't even know how long. Because even if there is a vaccine, will there be another super virus that will be, you know, vectored from some other bat or animal somewhere? Who knows? You know, with our society around the world right now, it's just more likely that we're going to have these kinds of things. According to experts, my dog is barking at a squirrel or a Amazon delivery person. Anyway, so on average, about four months into the long distance portion, when things start to go, things start to get difficult. 37% of long distance couples break up within three months of becoming geographically close. So let's unpack this for a second. So, as couples are long distance, they reach an equilibrium usually, let's say a couple years. And then when those couples move in together, presumably because they're just like, oh, we can't wait to live together, they move in together. 37%, according to you know, one study, found that when they move in together, they 30% of these couples will break up within three months uh, well, not moving in together, just becoming geographically close. Sorry, let me back up. So not just moving into moving in together, which might be part of it, but just even living in the same town. So why is that? That's pretty interesting, right? Now, I'm, I'm guessing there's a range there, and this is just one study. But let's just say that a sizable minority of long-distance couples will break up when they when they finally move to the same town. Why is that? Well, like I said earlier, it's well, now we have to deal with the real person that I'm in a relationship with. And for those of you who watch 90 Day Fiance with me on YouTube can maybe attest to this. There's a lot of couples who are just head over heels in love as they're talking over you know, FaceTime and texting and whatnot and zero problems. And then they go on the show and they're living in the same town for, for a bit of time, maybe 90 days. And all this conflict immediately starts happening. Erica and Stephanie, uh, Darcy and all, everyone, <laughs> and uh, all the other people. So it, it, it stands to reason, and it's another hazard. Or, you know, there are pros and cons, I guess, to the long-distance relationship. The pro is that you're more appreciative. The con is that you might not really know the other person, particularly if you started off as a long distance relationship or you or it quickly converted to, to long distance, meaning that within the first year or so it transitioned to long distance. 
it doesn't really give you time to really know each other. I think most of us will agree that in the beginning of a dating relationship, we're not exactly who we are, or it's hard to know exactly who someone is in the first you know, few months. Anyway, now a lot of you have emailed me asking specifically about infidelity and, long ter- and long-term relationships. Maybe some of you are even thinking this. Many of you are in long-distance relationships and maybe worry about infidelity. Well, let's look at this. So Goldsmith and Byers 2018 study, they looked at long-distance relationships and geographically close relationships. They found that they're similar to other studies. There's a similar satisfaction and there's a similar likelihood of cheating. So, you know, just because you live in the same town doesn't mean that you're not likely to cheat, right? But there's this cultural notion that if you're long distance, your likelihood of cheating is even higher, but it's actually not true. Long distance relationships are just as likely to cheat as if you live in the same town. That isn't to say that cheating doesn't happen in long distance relationships. It just means that it's not a seemingly a risk factor according to this one study. Now, why would that be? Because it seems like, hey, if you're long distance relationship, it just seems like cheating is going to be much more likely. Well, the, the fact is, or not the fact, but my conceptualization of this is that cheating is a multifactorial issue, meaning that there are a lot of factors that contribute to whether or not someone will cheat or not. And being in a long distance, you know, not living in the same town doesn't seem to hold a lot of weight. Might it play a factor case by case basis in some people? For sure. But cheating is much more, uh, you know, impacted by the status of the relationship, the closeness of the relationship, which long distance relationships can be just as close according to research. So when, you know, when relationships aren't very close, when one person has a personality disorder or has major attachment insecurities or traumas or something like that, almost all the time, and listen to my episodes on infidelity, you can go to our website and search for that. Just search for infidelity or cheating or something. I have found that according to research and when I treat people who have engaged in infidelity, it is much more a result of unhealthy dysfunction and pain and sadness. It, you know, we, we have this notion of cheating it, uh, of people who cheat as people who are just like, ha ha ha, I'm going to have my cake and eat it too. That is a narrative that is generally not true in my experience because people want approval. They want attachments. They want to tell the truth. They want to be close to other people. They don't want to hurt other people unless you're a psychopath, which is a very small percentage of the human population. Those people don't care, so they'll cheat and not care. But, you know, like 97, 98% of the population cares. And so they don't want to cheat. Now, do some people have troubles with maturity or sense of self? For sure. Uh, So it's not like... Uh, you can't sort of be angry at them. You, and, and if you're hurt by infidelity, then you're entitled to that 100%, by the way. Uh, but it's, in my mind, infidelity is not the result of people trying to be selfish, so to speak. Um, so uh, this is all to say that if you're in the same town, you can still have all the same issues that lead to cheating, if that makes any sense. Okay. 
All right, so let's take a break. When we get back, let's talk about the challenges and behavior and attachment, and I'll provide my advice for those in long-distance relationships. Let's take a break. All right, we're back from the break. Speaking of long-distance relationships, today's sponsor is geared towards you clinicians out there who want to provide long-distance therapy, online therapy with BetterHelp, by the way. You know, many of you clinicians have emailed me asking questions about how to build your practice. Well, there's a solution. It's online therapy, and that's where BetterHelp comes in. If you're interested in building an online practice, a long-distance practice, go to BetterHelp.com slash Seattle to get started. Make sure you use the slash Seattle because that helps us out. Research shows that people are increasingly turning to online therapy for various reasons. Research also shows that online therapy can be an effective way of helping people. I have colleagues and supervisees who love doing this sort of work. So if you're interested, it's definitely worth checking out. Also, I have been told that BetterHelp takes care of a lot of business stuff for you, like getting you clients, taking care of your billing, taking care of insurance, etc. So if you're interested, go to BetterHelp.com slash Seattle to get started. If you're a therapist, a counselor, psychiatrist, psychiatric nurse, a social worker, BetterHelp.com slash Seattle to get started today. All right, let's talk about the challenges. Well, the challenges, according to research, are that long-distance relationships, people have more depressive symptoms, which is interesting. So people in long-distance relationships are more likely to be depressed, which you know stands to reason. There's also more likelihood of jealousy. So that, that's you know getting back. So even though there's less rates of cheating, there's more jealousy, which makes a lot of sense. If you are prone to jealousy yourself, even a little bit, you're going to worry because your partner is in another town, probably going out with other people, and you just don't know what they're doing. They could be doing anything. And this, you know, obviously the jealousy can be, all, can be sexual jealousy, like, oh, I, I wonder if she's having sex with someone else. But it also can be just jealousy of you're, you know, worried that they're closer to their friends and they're having f- fun with their friends in that town and not, you know, fun with you. Uh, research shows, uh, so a research study by Sang 2016. By the way, there was a fair amount of research in Asia, Asian countries, China, Japan, these sorts of uh, places, because I believe because a lot of people in Asian countries, China, Korea, Japan, and other countries, have long-distance relationships prevalence much higher. <laughs> that sentence was terrible. Their prevalence of long-distance relationships can can be quite high because of mobility. My cat wants to chime in here. First my dog, now my cat. Everyone wants to be on the podcast today. So uh, saying in 2016, did a study and found that they people in long distance relationships they face challenges of uncertainty, meaning that they don't know what's going to happen. They don't know where their partner is. They're worried about the future. Negative thoughts, thoughts of ending the relationship. So people in long distance relationships will sometimes report, "It's like, yeah, I often think, should I be in this relationship?" Insecurity, getting back to that jealousy part, and distrust, also jealousy part. 
on Kiru.com, they asked a lot of their uh, you know visitors to fill out a survey about long distance relationships and found the following percentages of challenges among their you know visitors. So people out there listening, what do you think is the most uh, cited concern or challenge with long distance relationships? You know, when people say, when you ask them like, well, what's the worst part of being in a long distance relationship? What do people say? Well, two thirds, 66% said lack of physical intimacy. So this is obviously sex, but it's also cuddling, holding hands because if you work it right, you can talk all day long. You can know what's happening in each other's lives, but you cannot physically touch the other person. So two thirds said pretty you know, big concern with lack of physical intimacy. 55% said worried that the part, their partner would meet someone else. So that's interesting. So more than half of people in long distance relationships, according to this survey on Kiru.com, were worried that their partner would meet someone else. And I'm guessing that it's a much lower percentage when you live in the same town or live together. 50% felt very lonely. This is why this is in the lonely series, number three lonely series of of my uh, podcast episodes. So 50% feeling lonely. And this is something that I hear a lot of when I talk to people in long-distance relationships. There's this sort of notion of like, well, you know, you're texting all the time, you're talking all the time. You know, why are you lonely? You know, the internet provides constant ability to communicate all the time. So what's, what's the problem here? Well, we evolved to be physically close, and I'll get into more of this later. So this general sense of loneliness can really set in for people. 45% said it was a challenge because it was very expensive to visit. So remember that long-distance relationships tend to skew young, people who don't have a lot of money or any money for these kinds of plane trips and hotels, or I don't know, I guess they wouldn't stay in a hotel. But anyway, it's expensive. And it's a major barrier to being able to see each other. You know, just imagine that if you were with a partner and the only way you could see each other is if you had to, uh, I don't know, take a second job or something. 43% said they were concerned about growing apart. Growing apart makes sense. 40% said it was a challenge because of lack of communication, meaning lack of enough communication. 33% said it was a problem because of the time difference. So if someone lives in London, for example, and they're dating someone in Seattle, I think that's an eight-hour difference, if I'm not mistaken. And so when someone is getting up, and so if, you know, what would it be? If someone's getting up in the morning, in, you know, or it's noon in, in London, I believe it's like eight or four in the morning in Seattle. <laughs> I'm not very good with this, but... Anyway, the point is, is that because of the time difference, it's hard to match up your schedules. And so you have a hard time setting times to communicate. And if you're watching 90 Day Fiance with me, you, you can hear people complain about that as well. 24% reported a difference of opinion regarding the mode of communication. So a fourth of long distance relationships will fight about, hey, I like Skype. Hey, I like Zoom. Hey, I like texting. Hey, I like telephone calls, you know, that kind of thing. I like snail mail. 
Okay, so those are the challenges, and those are pretty significant, right? And a lot of people report a lot of significant challenges. Okay, let's look at behavior. What do people do? Well, uh, according to research, Holt and Stone, uh, 1988, found that seeing each other less than once a month means less satisfaction. So, you know, who knows what that means, how much less satisfaction. But it seems to be that, you know, the minimum amount of physically seeing each other on average is about once a month. And less than that, then you're going to see a drop off in satisfaction. Not with everyone, but with them. My dog is barking at someone else now. (laughs) First it's the dog, now it's the cat, or then it was the cat, now it's the dog. Uh, Goldner and Swenson in 1995 found that even if the time spent together was short, couples reported an an increase in satisfaction if they had high-quality time together. So this is something that is potentially a, a tip, if I might jump the gun on the tips section, is that... Long-distance relationship couples might struggle sometimes, like, well, do I uh, take off just for a weekend once a month, or do I save it all up and go two weeks, uh, be, you know, and and really get to spend time with each other for three months or something? Now, it's hard to say. Again, it's case-by-case basis. But according to this study, you can uh, – a little bit of time together can go a long way. So if you're if you're just with each other for a, a you know two or three days, and it's high quality time that can really sustain the satisfaction of a relationship. So it's not it's not necessarily quantity; it's quality. Saulstein, two thousand four, interviewed twenty couples and found being together enables being apart in several ways. In that, when you're together, it rejuvenates your relationship. You know, when those that weekend you're together, it rejuvenates. It reminds each other of the relationship. It allows the couple to construct memories together. It's very important. It's something to think about. It's like when you're just talking over FaceTime, you might generate some memories together, but not the sort of memories that you get when you actually do things together, like going on a, a rowboat ride or you go to a restaurant and the waiter is really weird or something like you just construct these memories in, in real time together, which is a big part of bonding in any relationship. Also being together occasionally builds anticipation of seeing each other. This is another big thing, which, you know, I'll get into when I talk about my tips is that you need to feel anticipation of seeing each other. And when you feel that anticipation, it gives you hope. It builds energy towards each other. You, you know, you're, you're really looking forward to it, that sort of thing. And also being together occasionally will build trust. So it's very important that you have occasional in-person meetings because it rejuvenates, you build memories, you anticipate those weekends together, and you build trust. All right, let's look at communication. So, There's a lot of research on this, but not a lot of uh, convincing research because usually they're studying young people. And so um, the data tends to skew towards younger people who are much more adept at texting and, you know, video calling and this sort of thing. But uh, I'll just conclude by saying that the average communication is kind of all over the map. So, um, but on average, uh, the the one stat that I <laughs> I'm sort of bumbling this section, but on average, 
what I did find was that long-distance relationships tended to see each other about one and a half times per month. That's on average, but that's interesting, right? On average, long-distance couples see each other about one and a half times per month, which is recommended given that the research shows that less than once a month, then you're going to see a drop-off in satisfaction. Now, some couples out there might be saying, well, we only see each other once every three months and we're fine. Well, that's, that's fine. Again, it's just average. How about texting? Well, average texting ranges all over the place. So some, some long-distance relationships don't text at all. Most do. And the average can be in the hundreds. So say one, two, three, four, five hundred texts per week. So some couples will text throughout the day. Some couples living in the same house will text throughout the day. <laughs> Sometimes I text my wife when she's in another part of the house because I don't want to get up and, and, and actually talk to her. <laughs> so sometimes we'll just, or sometimes I'll just call her even though, you know, she's upstairs. I'm just being lazy. Anyway, the point is, is that some long distance couples uh, use a lot of texting. Most, most text probably 50 times a day-ish, 20, you know, 10 to 50 times a day. And phone video calls range from every day to once per week. So this is the, this is the piece that really varies quite a bit, is for some long-distance relationships, they will talk every day, and they you know, religiously talk on the phone every day. Some long-distance couples, though, it's like, well, you know, I don't really have anything to say, uh, so I'll wait until our Friday phone call or something. And both of those can work. But research by Dayton and Ayler, 2002, less communication equals less satisfaction, less trust, less commitment, and more jealousy. Again, that's on average. But that's important, and it makes sense that if you only talk to each other once a month and you don't text very often – then I'm guessing the relationship is going to feel less satisfactory. There's going to be less trust, less commitment, and potentially, you know, potential for more jealousy. Other things that I'll mention that people do sometimes is they will do what you, you call background Skype or background Zoom, meaning that you uh, just turn on Zoom and you just hang out together the way you might if you were sitting next to each other. You know, if you're sitting next to each other in your apartment or your house, you're not constantly talking to each other, right? You both might, you know, one person might be on their laptop, the other person might be on their phone, uh, you know, those kinds of things. And so having Zoom on in the background means that you can just, you just have contact with the person like, oh, I see them doing something. It just feels good to, to know what they're up to. And if I wanted to say something, I could. So, so sometimes people will do that. Or playing games together, you know, having activities together, which I recommend. Anyway. All right. So let's talk about attachment theory for a second here, because I'm all about the attachment theory, as y'all know. So in short, and again, if you want to hear the long version of this, listen to my several hours of attachment theory deep dive by, by becoming a patron. You, when you become a patron, you'll get access to it on your phone or wherever you listen. Uh, in short, we evolved to feel stress, sadness, and pain when we're away from our attachment figures. Basically, uh, and sometimes, you know, when I first discovered this, this notion, it really changed the way I see emotions in that motivations, in that emotions motivate us. So <laughs> I'm sort of tripping over my words today, but... When I first learned, I don't remember who taught me this years ago, 
that emotions serve a purpose to motivate. Okay. Cause I don't know about you, but I, I thought of emotions just like, Oh, it's just sort of the side effect of life. You know, like I'm watching a movie and I'm crying and I'm sad. It's just sort of this result of life. But one way to look at emotions, and it's not always this way, but I find it very useful to look at emotions this way, is that emotions are, we evolved them to motivate behavior, to motivate us to do things. I feel hungry, and I'm motivated to eat food. I'm thirsty, I'm motivated to, to drink water. I feel, I, you know, these aren't, these aren't necessarily emotions. We might not call these emotions, but you can call them like, a, like an emergent feeling. I have to go to the bathroom, so I, you know, motivates me to go to the bathroom. Well, sadness and stress is there to teach us what is bad, like uh, walking up to a cliff and looking over the edge. We get scared. Why? Because we evolved to feel a stress response. Because it, those who didn't feel that stress response might walk too close to the edge of a cliff. Those who felt the stress response are motivated to walk away from the edge of the cliff and the stress level goes down. Closer to the cliff, more stress. Move away from the cliff, less stress. And you become very aware of that as you age. And so we also evolved, because we're extremely social creatures, to feel stress and sadness and pain, physical pain, when we are separated from our kin, from our loved ones. And that motivates us to seek those people out. This happens from birth. When a six-month-old child is separated from their parents, the, ch- the six-month-old child, you'll visibly see the child scream and cry, but what the child is feeling is stress and sadness and pain, and they're crying as a result because that motivates the crying actually is this feedback loop. It motivates the parents to you know run back to the kid. And so we evolved that. We're, we're, we're very social creatures, and we don't survive on, on our own, particularly back in the olden times. And so when we have chronic separation that is facilitated by a long-distance relationship, it leads to all sorts of problems, loneliness and sadness and jealousy and anger and putting up walls and giving up on relationships altogether, even developing weird political beliefs. I believe emerges from chronic separation and chronic attachment uh, injury, physical ailments, addiction, all these things have been shown by research to be linked to chronic separation, chronic loneliness, and chronic attachments, attachment needs not being met. So in a long distance relationship, uh, now when we look at the research, long distance relationships can be very satisfying. So how does, how does that work? Well, again, it's the communication and the seeing each other uh, in, you know, f- as frequently as you need to. But we also see that long-distance relationships don't tend to last as long, according to some research. So does that point to this issue of attachment being challenged? I, so I, I have a profile. This isn't all long-distance relationships, but I've seen a profile of long-distance relationships where the members of the long-distance relationship will just try to have optimism They did they, because they're sort of forced to be long-distance and they are trying to make the best of it. So they're looking on the bright side. They're, oh, this is going to work. 
Or, well, there's no other way to make this work because I got to get my doctorate in Chicago and she lives in Minneapolis or something. And you just try to make it work. So you're, you're, you're being optimistic. Meanwhile, in the background, all these bad things are starting to happen. Loneliness, jealousy, anger, physical ailments, more alcohol use, this sort of thing. It's all kind of building up in the background, unaware uh, the pr- people might be unaware of the toll it's taking on them because they're trying to act like mature, evolved people. But the issue is, is we literally evolved to not be separated from our loved ones. <laughs> now, this isn't to say the long distance relationships can't work, but um, so that leads to my next question here is, is it advisable to be in a long distance relationship? And the answer to that, that I will say after reviewing all the research and thinking about it for quite some time, is that sure, it, it, it is advisable if, if necessary to be in a long distance relationship. You know, let's say that you meet the one and two years in, you have to spend three years apart. Well, I think most people would say, well, it's, it's worth it. If you found the one, then it's worth to the three years of suboptimal lifestyle for a lifetime of being with your soulmate, right? So it, it's all a matter of, of sacrifice. But the thing here is I would avoid it if possible. You know, I would avoid it if possible because of the lower success rate and, and all the complications that happen. That you, 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 There's always complications and challenges to any relationship. You don't want to add to it by... Uh, choosing a long-distance relationship. Now, for some people, they might really love long-distance relationships because they want their own space, this kind of thing. But even those people, when I really investigate it, I find them to be suffering quite a bit. So so I would try to avoid it if possible. Again, sometimes it's totally necessary. I guess what I'm saying is, you know, let's say you're on Tinder or, or you're at a party. That's probably better. You're at a party and you meet two people that you would like to date. Well, if one person lives in another town, I might recommend going with the person that lives in town. If they both seem, you know, they're both equally hot, they're both equally interesting, (laughs) they both seem equally into you, I I would default to the person who lives in your town because the extra challenges that long-distance relationships uh, produce. But like I said, if you meet the one and you're... But here's the other caveat that I'll say is... Uh, I wouldn't, if you can help it, I wouldn't start a relationship long distance, meaning that say you meet someone at a party and they say, I live in another town and I'm leaving tomorrow. I, I would be pretty careful about starting that relationship for a lot of reasons. It doesn't mean it can't work because it can, but again, there's all the challenges and our attachment needs need to be our physical and in person. The physical, the literal warmth of people's bodies is what we need from other people. We need that physical sensation that it, we evolved to need. That's not an intellectual need that we have. We, we literally have a need to be touched. And we're increasingly not being touched in our society in a way that is healthy for us because of it. We live in, a, at least in the United States, a touch-phobic society. It's crazy how touch-phobic we are as a society. So anyway, um, so it can work, but I wouldn't recommend it. And of course, you know, there's so many downsides that most people would be able to identify. 
But if it's short term, you know, it could work. All right, so let's get to my tips here. So the number one tip that I have is make plans and stick with them. Uh, so you want, you want plans to get together because this provides hope. I know some long-distance relationships where they're just like, well, I don't know the next time I'm going to be able to see you. Even if it's nine months in the future, you need something to look forward to. I, I know long-distance relationships where it's just like, I don't know when the next time I'm going to see them. And sometimes that's just necessary because they're doctors without borders you know, somewhere across the world and they don't know what's going to happen. But, but if you can, try to make plans to see each other and again, stick with them. And in that... Uh, space, you want to try to look forward to the future plan. You want to say, when you're down, for example, and you're just feeling demoralized, you want to say, well, we'll see each other in two months, and then we'll really, you know, be able to bond during that time. And according to research, try to see each other at least once per month, and as often as possible in person. And again, it's not the length of time together, it's the quality of the time. So if, if it's a week, but you fight the whole time, that's not good. But if it's just one day and you had this glorious time together, that's a big deal, right? That can really sustain the, you know, the lonely times or sustain the relationship through the lonely times. Number two is communicate about how to communicate. So how often are you going to communicate? What's the method? Texting, video, you know, chat. Letters, what is it? What's the vibe of communication? Is it going to be sort of surface? Is it going to be checking in, downloading? Is it going to be in-depth? You know, what? what is the communication? So you have to work together on that. And don't assume that you're just going to develop or don't assume that you have the same preferences of communication. And comp- compromises might be necessary. Usually one person wants more communication than the other, more frequent communication. Usually one person wants to text throughout the day, for example, and the other person is just like, "Ah, I don't need that that much. So you have to communicate about that and respect each other's wishes and understand that uh, you might have to compromise a little bit. And don't take it as a sign of non-love. You know, if if you want to text throughout the day and your partner doesn't, don't, it's not as necessarily a sign that your partner doesn't love you. It just means that they're, they just have a different preference. So just try, to, just try to take it easy on each other in that way. All right, number three is reassure your partner that you're not cheating somehow, <laughs> if that's a concern. Because if jealousy and concerns about cheating start to build, they can really become toxic in someone. And so do what you can to to one ask for for reassurance without being accusatory but also uh, to reassure your partner that you're not you're not cheating number 4 is turn to each other when feeling an emotion this is very important you know if you just text each other or you just do video chat at the end of the day a couple times a week you might not be there when you have a big moment in your life, like a promotion or someone trying to run you off the road on the freeway. And it's important for bonding and to get getting to know each other and for dependency between each other, mutual dependency, to turn to each other when you're having an emotion, when you need someone to talk to, whether it's pain or anger or joy or you know being elated for some, for some, some reason. You want to turn to each other and have those experiences. How do you do that? It could be texting, a big, you know, mind-blown emoji or something. But 
uh, you know, default towards each other because it might not be natural to do that because you might think, well, I'll wait until we talk later. No, you know, immediately try to reach out to that person because that builds the relationship. And it's a wonderful part of being in a relationship. You know, for, for me and my wife, we're the first people that find out the other person is having an emotion, <laughs> especially these days with the pandemic, just being stuck at home. You know, if any one of, if either one of us is, is having any sort of emotion, the other person knows about it pretty quickly. <laughs> and it feels good, you know, it just feels good to be included. It feels good to know what's going on. It feels good to be a part of someone's, you know, emotional life and, and not missing out on those things. Number five tip is try to have activities together. This is very important. You know, when I'm watching 90 Day Fiance, a lot of times when the couples are uh, chatting on FaceTime in different countries, they're just sort of chatting in this very superficial way. Now, maybe they have very in-depth conversations. I don't know. But I don't know how that facilitates bonding and how that facilitates one's attachment needs. I would, I recommend really just trying to have activities like watching a movie, playing a game, maybe sexting, um, phone sex. These are all, you know, good things to do. Um, number six is have other relationships to meet your needs because of the long distance. It's possible that you're, attachment needs aren't being met. Even if you're living with someone, it's not likely that that person can satisfy all your attachment needs. So don't put all your eggs in your romantic relationship basket, particularly if it's long distance. So you really want to make sure you have a lot other relationships to meet your needs. Maybe even cuddling needs, right? Like you have a friend that you like, you like to cuddle with, you know, that sort of thing or hug at the very least. Number seven is try to get to know each other. So you're not surprised when you move in together or you move to the same town. Really try to get to know each other. Don't just put on your superficial face. You know, don't be performative. Try, try to get to know each other in a real, real way because according to research, some people, when they finally do get to see each other in person, they suddenly realize, oh my God, I don't really like this person. Well, Part of the reason, if not the whole reason, might be because the two of you over video chat were not really being real with each other. So you could save yourself a lot of time by finding out whether or not this person is good for you by trying to cultivate real communication exchanges between the two of you. Be vulnerable. Be real. Uh, be your regular self. That's important. And we've seen that on 90 Day Fiance, where people will put on a face some people accused um, Stephanie, you know, Stephanie and Erica, Stephanie of putting on some kind of fake self before they met up. And then they found out they didn't really like each other. So those are my seven tips for being in a long distance relationship. What is it like for you in a long distance relationship? I am curious, did any of this resonate with you? Because I just rattled off a lot of things. Do you have any additional tips that I could add to the list? What do you think of the research findings that I spouted? Um, all of that stuff. <laughs> if you're on YouTube, comment below about those things. If you want to email me, you want to go to psychologyseattle.com slash contact, I believe. Just go to psychologyseattle.com and click on the contact page and email me through that. We're changing to a new system of communication and 
uh, I finally, so <laughs> for the past 12 years of the podcast, I have had one email address. I, I had an email address at my university, but for emailing my wife or my mom or my dad or the listeners, I used one email address. <laughs> And that is not working for me now with all the emails I'm getting. So I, so for some of you, you might actually have my personal email address and you might say, oh, I'll just email him through that. I mean, unless we're real close, you know, like it's Colin or Emily or someone like that, then um, that's fine for you all because you're not just listeners to me, your colleagues or friends or something. But also, but if but if you can, it would be better for me if you go to the website, use use the contact button to to email me, because then the emails will be kind of funneled through the proper channels, if that makes any sense. And uh, I read every email, so you know uh, I'm dedicated to that, and I try to respond to every email. I would say I respond to 99% of every email I've ever gotten on this podcast. And the 1% that I don't respond to are probably just because there's something really weird about the email that I don't even know what to say here. Um, so I always want that to be true. I, I actually hope that my podcast doesn't get too big that I can't do that because I, I've emailed podcasters in the past and not gotten a response and it bummed me out. <laughs> Like, like when I'm really into a podcast and it feels like the pod, you know, if I email Conan O'Brien, I realize I'm not going to get an email back, but I remember emailing the, the stuff you should know guys. I can't remember those guys' names. And this is back in like, I don't know, 2001 or something a long time ago when the podcast, it seemed really small to me. And I remember emailing them and, and, you know, really thinking about my words, like, well, what do I say? And I, because I've been listening to them for for so long and I just have so many things. Well, I don't want to bore them. So I, you know, I really crafted this email, no response, not even a response that they got the email. And, you know, just, it just bums you out. You want to, when you're listening to a podcast, you want to feel like you have a personal, you feel like you have a personal relationship with them. And I'm guessing some of you feel that way about me. And so, um, I not only want to honor that and respect that, but I also feel it's a somewhat of a two way relationship. Uh, this podcast is 90% uh, formed and structured because of you telling me how to structure this podcast. <laughs> you know, like, I don't like this. I don't like that. I mean, the fact that I'm now that I'm just rambling, the fact that I'm even doing an episode by myself is because years ago, I wanted to do an episode on psychodynamic uh, conceptualization. It's called psychodynamic formulation, I think. And I was like, well, you know, if I do it with my co-hosts, they're just going to be bored out of their minds because that, that would happen sometimes. And I don't want to bore my co-hosts, so maybe I'll just do this episode by myself. And I didn't know what to think of it. I was like, episode by myself? That's crazy talk. Like, that's narcissistic. It's boring. And I did the episode. And at the end of the episode, I said, what, you know, what do you all think of this, me doing episodes by myself? And I got, you know, a number of maybe three emails or something saying, oh, I like it. I was like, okay, you know, I'll keep doing that. So, you know, I want it. So it is a two-way street, not only for feedback, but obviously just for the meaning of it for me. I get tremendous meaning from the listeners. You know, every day I see comments on YouTube. I see comments on Facebook or, you know, Instagram. I, I see, I probably see everything. That's, you know, and 
and it um, warms my heart, you know, to know that there's people who believe in social justice, are dedicated to attachment, are striving to better their relationships, are nice to me. It's just, it, it is a huge part of my life, truly, when I feel like I'm making a difference. Because that's, that's my mission in life, and that's why I do this podcast, is I'm trying to make a positive difference. There's so many other things I could be doing, right, with my time. Um, not to say that, you know, I'm some special person, but I'm just saying that as a human being, we all have a lot of options in life about what to do with our life. And I decided to do this and have dedicated, you know, I don't know, tens of thousands of hours to this. And well, how many hours? I think I think I actually have a tally. You know what? Let's look it up together. <laughs> so I'm a list taker and, you know, an Excel spreadsheet person. And I've been keeping track of every single hour I've ever spent on the podcast. And let's look at it together right now. Hours. Oh, 10,000. 10,528. So I have spent 10,528 hours on this podcast. It seems kind of small when you put it in those numbers, you know, 10,520. But when you think about the fact that a full-time job is usually like about 2,000 hours, so that's like five years of a full-time job, that still doesn't, you know, because it just seems like the podcast is all-consuming of my life, particularly now. I bet you it's, well, let me look by year. I bet you I have a lot more hours this year. (laughs) (laughs) um let's see podcast where are me where am i where are my hours podcast hours um kirk hours so last year i spent 2100 hours on the podcast my god 21 and this year we're halfway through the year i've already spent 1900 hours so this year i'm on track to spend close to 4000 hours that is is crazy. It's I guess it's because of the pandemic and I don't have anything else to do. <laughs> My God, that's a lot of time. But I like it. And part of it is because you email me through contact. Um, you email me by going to the website and emailing contact or clicking on the contact page. Anyway, everyone out there, please take care of yourself and those in long-distance relationships I hope you are bonding well and take and take care of each other because you deserve it. You really, really do.